0: Welcome to Wild Places. I'm your host, Brad Clement. This podcast is presented by Pangee Foundation. Saving snow leopards, helping communities. Eric Lillstrom joins us today. Eric, super excited to have you here. I don't know of many people who essentially make their living in and on the North Pole. Uh, so you're a guide, you, you guide expeditions in polar regions. How many
1: times have you been to the North Pole? You know, I've, I've been to the North Pole a handful of times. Uh, my first time there was in April of 2014. Uh, I've gone almost every year since, with the exception of the last couple of years. Uh, I feel like I feel like I've forgotten what it's like because we just haven't been able to go for the last two years. But um, yeah, um, so I think I've I've stood at the North Pole probably. You know, five or six separate times, sometimes multiple times in one year, but uh, it never feels like the same place. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and is it the same place? I mean, what is the North Pole? It's essentially frozen ocean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you're absolutely right. It's, um, you know, obviously you're in the same spot geographically when you reach 90 degrees north or the the geographic North Pole, but uh, what you see when you get there is just whatever frozen ocean happens to be floating across the north pole at that moment um, and when i say moment you know that can really be just you know one second you you find 90 degrees north on your gps you know you're right there and then a few seconds later you have floated past it and you have to go back and and you know and find it again because that ice is in constant motion so, so that i would Love to later on get into the fact
0: that yeah I mean I would think you know you start at point A you end at point B point B being the North Pole mm-hmm. it's just a straight line you go there and that's all it is but but really I guess it's not I mean the ocean is moving currents are are in play so you're moving on this frozen water while you're trying to get to this magnetic GPS point yeah but it's in general. I, Correct me if I'm wrong. It's not easy just to get to where
1: you're going to start the expedition. There are a lot of logistics. How do you how do you get there? You know, there there are a few ways. Uh, the most common way is probably just by helicopter. Um, so the reason why most people visit during the month of April is because that's when those logistics that you mentioned are really in place uh, to to allow for you know a good number of people each year to visit the North Pole. Um, And that's because there is a a base camp that's built on the ice somewhere within the last degree of latitude so within 60 nautical miles of the North Pole that um, that they plow a runway on the ice for this, you know one specialized jet to come land on and then. um, From there, people will get in a helicopter and go to the North Pole uh, fly directly there hop out and visit uh, and then fly back so first of all you have to get to. Svalbard, which is an archipelago of islands north of Norway in the Arctic Ocean, um, which you can reach by any, you know, a normal commercial flight. And from there, you take a about a two-hour flight on a specialized Russian um, transport jet to the Barneo Ice Camp uh, and land, which is built there on the ice. Uh, and then from there, take a helicopter to the North Pole or, uh, in our case, um take a helicopter to your expedition starting point um and then be airlifted out by helicopter afterwards
0: nice nice so you keep mentioning things like you know there, there's a runway plowed on the ice we there, there's a base camp situated and and built on the ice and you also mentioned the month of April mm-hmm. so how how is this ice permanent does it does it come and go with the seasons and and
1: how thick is the ice you know the ice thickness varies a lot um it's really only viable in april because uh, the sun has just risen on the arctic after a long polar winter and so the ice is at its greatest extent um and uh you know as that that ocean freezes uh, around the the edges of this vast ice sheet floating on the arctic ocean it it can be relatively thin because that ice freezes and thaws every year Um, what we look for or what the logistics company looks for when building the base camp is uh some good stable what we call multi-year ice which doesn't uh thaw during the summertime um and so that ice can be anywhere from you know three meters to you know 15 meters thick um at the very at the very thickest but most of the time it's just a large stable pan of ice um -hmm. that you know that that's that's been around for a few years and uh when you're that close to the north pole you have a lot better luck at finding a stable piece of ice to to build a runway on Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why we go in april the the uh the climate has just become livable, the sun is up, so you're not experiencing minus 60 degree temperatures, you're experiencing, you know, anywhere from zero to minus, you know, 30 or 40 at the coldest. Um, and uh, and like I said, that, that ice is basically at its most stable point uh, for expeditions to happen. So you're pretty casual about uh...
0: Zero to minus 30, 40. Yeah. How many days are you experiencing minus 30, minus 40? And and for, for our listeners, at, at a certain point, you know, actually at minus 40 Celsius and Fahrenheit uh, agree with each other. So we're talking really cold. And- yeah,
1: and I you know, I usually work in Celsius for expeditions, but uh, minus 40 would be a very cold day at the North Pole. It's not unheard of, but it's not the rule. I'd say more often uh, talking in Fahrenheit you're you know you're looking at 10 degrees on the warm side to you know minus 10 minus 20 um, but it, it's a it's a very different kind of cold than you may have experienced other places such as high altitude mountaineering or you know it's it's a very humid cold the humidity is around eighty percent because you're right there at sea level. Um, And so wherever there's open water, you know, it's just pumping moisture into the air. Uh, And you're also not getting any heat from the sun. Uh, It's about 10 degrees off the horizon and just runs around the horizon once a day. Um, So you're not getting any warmth from the sun. uh, And it's that kind of damp, penetrating cold. So uh, if you'd ask me, I think the North Pole feels a lot colder than somewhere that uh, Is colder on a thermometer, like you know, Antarctica or Greenland can be, um, but you know, those are much, much drier, cold, and you get more sunlight.
0: Yeah, I, I love the way you mentioned uh, humidity, uh, and I believe we both grew up in the Midwest, so I, I know yeah. like humidity makes it even more cold. than you're talking about no sun, no no thermal penetration from the sun. So, so given those factors. What, what made you end up being a
1: polar guide? How did, how did you fall into this? I did just fall into it really. Um, <clears throat> so the company that I work for is called Polar Explorers. We're based out of the North Chicago area. And we have a sister company that does uh, sea kayaking adventures all across the world, but also some locally there in the, in the Great Lakes and the Midwest. And that's actually where I began Uh, because I had a background in, you know, aquatic sports, uh, canoeing and kayaking. And uh, I was involved in a lot of outdoor activities as a kid. Um, And so let's see, I think I was probably 22 or 23 years old and was unhappy with my office job and found this company. Uh, Started on part time doing uh, kayaking lessons. And then worked my way up through that, uh, guiding some sea kayaking adventures, not, not hardcore by any means, uh, you know, into in in the Greek islands and, and the Mediterranean and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, then I was introduced to Polar Explorers through that company, The Northwest Passage. And um, I volunteered to be a grunt on one of our polar shakedown trainings in Northern Minnesota. And, um, you know, I was already skilled at cross-country skiing and had done some cold weather camping as a kid and took to it really well. And, um, when a spot opened up to work for Polar Explorers, I jumped on it and that's where I've been for the last, uh, the last seven years. That's great. What, if you could,
0: if you could just come up with one experience that has really stuck with you through, is there any one moment that you just think of that? That summarizes
1: your time on the North Pole. That is a really good question, and I don't think it's one that I've been asked before. Um, you know, the North Pole it's it's different from a lot of other what you might think are similar, uh, you know, expedition locations because there's no route. Like it's very, you wake up in the morning and you don't know what what type of terrain is ahead of you. It could be flat, you know, perfect ice and you'll make really great time. Uh, or, you know, you could be in for miles of impassable ice rubble or stretch like open water leads that, that you can't get around. Um, and I think one, experience in particular that kind of highlighted the you know the uncertain nature of it is uh was in 2017 when um i think it was our second night on the ice doing a last uh skiing the last degree of latitude to the north pole uh we were making dinner we had our our group of tents set up um and had not yet set up our our polar bear fence around the camp but I was sitting in the vestibule of the tent cooking appetizers for dinner. I think it was bacon and cheese quesadillas. And uh, I heard my co-guide, Annie, unzip her tent door. um, And I just hear her yell, bear, bear, bear. And I leapt up and unzipped the tent door. And, you know, 15 yards away was a polar bear standing, looking at our camp. Um, And... So luckily we were able to scare it away uh, without, you know, everyone was able to, to walk away from that expedition, hopefully a little wiser and, and unharmed. Um, but that's the only time that I've seen a polar bear. Uh, and it's actually really uncommon to, to encounter them on the sea ice. But I, I do come back to that uh, experience a lot when thinking about kind of just how uh, random and, and uncertain every hour that you have on the, on the CAs can be. So when you agree to guide <laughs> the
0: trips, you're dealing a lot with a, a, a friendship, a relationship with the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that. And, and are you comfortable there? Uh, I would assume the answer is yes. <clears throat> well,
1: Comfort is relative, I guess, but uh, I would say that uh, it's, I don't know that I'm comfortable with it, but it is something that keeps me coming back every time, you know, I've climbed some mountains and, you know, I'm not an excellent mountaineer by any means, but, you know, you go to the top and you come down and then, you know, when you climb the same mountain over and over, it, it it's 10. At least for me, it loses a little bit of its luster, it loses a little bit of the appeal. And uh, with the North Pole, because you don't know what, every, what, what each day is going to look like, it's like a new expedition every time. And so, while my comfort level with it is, is debatable day to day, I would say that it's very, it's definitely exciting.
0: That's cool. So, I, I know myself, uh, through through 20 years of being a mountain guide, there are some expeditions where, you know, it's stressful. Like every day you have so many moving parts, so many things to consider where it, it, it's really almost overwhelming. And yet I find myself enjoying those moments as well. Do you, do you as a polar guide, do you, do you experience that same thing where, you have, you have people relying on you. You have conditions that you don't have every answer for, uh, but but at the same time, you know you know you're going to be okay. And I don't know where that comes from, but it but it happens.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely feel feel similarly. Um, it's you know I I find myself being the most uh, stressed during the whole you know guiding process before taking the first step on, you know, on the trail. So once, once you have your bag packed or your sled packed and the helicopter flies away uh, you know, that's when everything settles down. That's when you, you know, the goal becomes clear uh, and all of the little problems that will happen along the way kind of work themselves out. Um, but the whole, you know, getting all making sure all the luggage is on the airplane making sure that every you know everybody has all of the right things that i think is is a more stressful part for me once uh once it's just you and your and your team on the ice you know it uh, that's that's a very comfortable place and what does that look like
0: when the helicopter leaves it's just your team you have this goal for for a magnetic point in the world and what are you looking at? How heavy are the sleds? Do you have anything on your back? And, and are
1: you walking? Are you skiing? How, how does this whole setup work? Sure. Um, so the, the sleds vary. Uh, you know, you're carrying all of your own personal gear, plus a portion of the group equipment. Um, so looking at probably 60 to 80 pounds on average, uh, you know, anywhere up to 100 150 pounds for a 10-day expedition um and some people will wear a a small backpack but uh i don't i don't prefer it because especially in that humid cold it just is another thing to collect sweat um but we use these harnesses that are basically like uh just a backpack shoulder straps and, and waist belt and then you your you know your sled clips onto that by way of like a 10 foot long uh, rope behind you. And we do use skis, backcountry, cross-country skis. Um, While there's no real elevation gain and loss, um, you know, it's we just use them for efficiency of travel. So you're staying on top of the snow, there's a a small skin for traction on the bottom. um, And uh, yeah, we, we found that that's by far the most efficient way to travel. Um, you're split up into groups of three. So uh, that's what we call our pods. Each group of three is uh, completely self-sufficient in case we were to get separated by an open lead of water or something, you know, your team could feasibly, you know, set up their tent and have food and be just fine until we're able to get get back together. But that's, that's not something that, that really happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Let's go back to, okay, so we're, we're skiing, we have these sleds, uh, and yet you are on a, an active, moving ocean, mm-hmm. just riding on the ice mm-hmm. on top of the ocean. So do you ever have days where beautiful weather, or whatever it may be, you think you're gonna make great time and get, get further in the route, and in reality, maybe you lose some ground because of the way the ocean <laughs> currents work?
1: Yeah. Yeah, those are bad days. <laughs> no matter how good the weather is, uh, if you're not making progress in a day, that's, that's a, a pretty bad day. Um, before, before getting dropped off, we have a pretty good sense of the trend of ice movement over the last month or whatever. And, and there are factors that can help predict you know, uh, what direction ice is going to be moving and how active that will be. Um, so we're not going in totally blind, but, uh, yeah, occasionally you'll find yourself on the polar treadmill as we call it. And, uh, and you're, uh, you know, you can generally, uh, you can always ski faster than the ice is moving. Um, uh, you know, if there's good, if there are good conditions in front of you, good, good sea ice conditions, but, uh if you are getting some what we call negative drift then when you set up camp at night you look at your gps and uh and then you clock it and wake up and look at it again and see how far you've drifted back mm-hmm. um, so what we prefer is when you wake up in the morning you look at your gps and you're you know a couple miles closer to the pole uh so that's just miles that you don't
0: have to ski so how many days in any given trip, do you get the benefit of the current versus the the negativity of the current? I'd say
1: more often than not, we set ourselves up to to get the positive drift. Nice. Um, I I like to use the analogy uh, for for ice pack movement as if you imagine uh, some Cheerios on on floating on a in a bowl of milk, and if you blew on them. They would all slowly move across to the other side and stack up against each other, and that's a very simplistic explanation of what happens with the sea ice. So when you have big systems of weather move across, um, it's going to it's going to take a, take some time to start moving that ice, and then it'll move, 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 and start to stack up against each other. So the one of the harder um, conditions to encounter is when uh, you have a good uh, drift trend going, and then you get a, a, a storm front that comes in and pushes against it, because that's when all of those, you know, tens upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of individual pans of ice will start to separate. Um, and yeah, and that can get kind of kind of dicey when it comes to uh, finding your way from, from, from pan to pan. So
0: do you find yourself navigating, let's say you go north to south, just for an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And do you find yourself having to navigate east and west just to find a good connection of these these plates of ice? Almost like, for me, the analogy would be going through a, a crevasse field on a mountain where you're trying to go straight, but you really have to go sideways, backwards, forwards, a lot to kind of figure out the maze.
1: Yeah, that's it's that's a, a very apt uh, comparison. Um, you know, cracks in the ice between pans are very much like crevasses. Only you can see the water right there. You know, you're it's not a an unknown distance to drop down. The the consequences of falling in the water are much less than falling in a crevasse. But, um, yeah, you we we find ourselves. Very often zigzagging right, left, you know, you know, even if you, you know, you're drifting north and a little bit east, uh, you can set, you know, what we would call in kayaking or any kind of boating it's called a ferry angle. um, Where if you, if you know you're getting pushed one way and you want to take the shortest line to a point, you have to kind of adjust Uh, off course a little bit so that you're getting pushed directly where you want to go so there is there's definite
0: strategy involved
1: and there's absolutely especially the closer that you get to the north pole because uh when you're 60 nautical miles away you don't you don't see the you know that your your margin of error is a lot uh you know a lot more forgiving When you get within a a couple miles of the North Pole and you're drifting quickly, you, you know, you get one good chance to, to, you know, get ahead of the North Pole and drift onto it or hit it right on. Uh, um, uh, Because you might, you know, take one route that is a little circuitous and then the North Pole, like you drift past and then you find yourself on that treadmill trying to catch back up to the north pole again so it's a bit of a chess game it is and it's honestly it's one of the most fun parts of being a guide on the north pole yeah (laughs) So, so we talk about
0: you mentioned leads open leads and and is that open water and how often do you encounter these and what does happen if someone falls
1: in the water we encounter uh open water leads or uh, freshly frozen leads. A lead is basically just a a stretch between established pans of ice. So you might encounter a lead that is, you know, a few inches thick of ice or even a foot thick and very stable to travel on. Um, But we encounter leads, you know, multiple times daily, usually. Um, Hopefully they are small, uh, you know, Ideally, just a couple feet or a couple inches uh, or frozen enough that you can just keep on going right over them. Um, the opposite of those is pressure ridges. And I, I guess we, we can talk about pressure ridges in a second. But occasionally you will get to some some complicated parts where you are trying to get across a larger lead by kind of linking up smaller pieces of ice to get across. And. Um, yeah. Falling in is not not common. Um, I think that the guides fall in uh, fall in maybe you know up to their ankle or up to their knee m- most often while uh, you know maybe testing out some some uh, potential ice for crossing or testing out what you know is some pre- in actuality some pretty soft ice but it looks okay to travel on. Um, But if someone was to fall in up to their neck uh, and get fully soaked through all the layers, you know, we would just get that person out with a throw rope or whatever. Um, And then ideally you, you start skiing again immediately to get that blood pumping and kind of develop that heat. Stop, set up a tent, strip off all the clothes, get some hot drinks, get into dry clothes, and then keep skiing immediately again um you know get dry and keep the body moving
0: so the opposite of leads are pressure ridges and and again I'm I'm a layman in all of this but that's where the ice pushes against itself to two plates or multiple plates and creates uh ridges creates yeah,
1: yeah ba- It's basically you know the, these are one of the things that that you can sometimes actually experience in uh in action because you know, obviously when you're on a pan of ice, you might be, you're, you're always drifting, but you can't feel that you're moving. Um, you know, it's, on, it's like being on a really large ship, essentially, that's moving very slowly. Um, but in a zone that's actively, you know, that's, that's active and making a pressure ridge, you, you'll sometimes actually see it or hear the ice cracking and groaning and you'll see you can see this this ridge forming and getting pushed up kind of like plate tectonics in miniature um and anywhere where there's a zone that's active we we wouldn't try and cross a ridge like that um because you know you're playing with these chunks of ice that are thousands of pounds um and if they're constantly moving you it's just too too risky but we will come up to, to pressure ridges that are constant, that are you know old and fixed in place, um, and then it's just a matter of you know is it going to be more work to cross this you know fifteen or twenty foot ridge of ice, or you know and get all of our sleds over and take off our skis and kind of shuttle everything across, or is it going to be more efficient to just ski along it and wait for uh, an easier spot to cross?
0: How many? Hours a day are you skiing and moving?
1: We um, usually moving about eight hours a day.
0: So um, for you, for you as a guide, you're talking about all of these variables. There are a lot yeah. of moving parts, quite quite literally, and eight hours with clients, mm-hmm. a lot of weight on a sled you're, you're tremendously engaged mentally throughout this process.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I'll, I'll come back to that being one of the reasons why it's, it's my favorite place to guide because you, you are completely engaged, you know, on some other expeditions where you're just crossing a large ice cap, like in Antarctica or Greenland, you can just throw in an audio book and, kind of check out and ski for you know eight hours um but as a guide especially you're you know constantly evaluating okay am I going to go this way I'm you know you're, you're constantly making choices in a choose your own adventure book basically um and sometimes the choices pan out sometimes they don't um but you know knowing that there are polar bears around, knowing that, you know, you know, that I don't want to say that the, that the other team members become kind of secondary because we take very good care of our, of our team members, but, uh, there's just so much more to think about that the days go by pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. (laughs) So, you're you're a new dad this is the first time dad we're speaking with today yeah three three weeks old three weeks old so wow wow and uh uh do you think being a father now is is that going to fit with your lifestyle of, of being away and guiding and and uh i mean i think of all the time before i got married I was literally spending six to nine months every year in a tent on some steep slope somewhere. Yeah. And, and uh, how do you feel about becoming a dad and how this affects you, you kind of your lifestyle and livelihood?
1: You know, I'm, I'm, first of all, I could not be more excited to be a dad. Uh, you know, I know it's something I've known that I've wanted for a long time. And, uh, it will definitely impact how much I enjoy the times that I'm away. I think, um, for example, like we have North Pole expeditions coming up this April where I'll, uh, normally I would try to negotiate not being gone quite as long. Um, but you know, I'll have to be gone for a month when she's three months old and I'm not excited for that. Um, but it's kind of unavoidable yeah yeah so so
0: if these trips are in april and i know you're doing other guiding other other work for this company throughout every year do you find yourself like really looking forward to april and kind of getting excited
1: yeah definitely <clears throat> it's i mean it's what we plan for every year we have other expeditions but the north pole is uh i think it's it's the thing that we're all most passionate about Um. And so it, it, it really is the culmination of, of our year uh, each year. And so this last year with the pandemic, we weren't able to travel. And uh, in 2019, the expeditions were canceled for a totally different reason, which uh, had never happened in the entire history of of uh, uh, the, the Barneo base camp. So we're, we're looking at two years running now where we haven't been able to step, set foot on the sea ice. And everybody is very, very eager to do it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Is there is there a website or is there a place where people can find out more about you and the company you work with? Uh, anything to mention on, on this? Yeah,
1: um, polarexplorers.com. Uh, you'll find all of our expeditions and details. Um, you know, emailing Polar Explorers, e- emailing Polar Explorers, you'll find, uh, gets you to me directly, um, or you can look me up. Uh, ericlostrom.com or just on social media which i still do but uh, I'm, I'm less and less enthused about gotcha gotcha
0: eric i can't thank you enough for being a guest today it's been fantastic uh, i i find this a fascinating place in the world and and really one of the last truly remote ever-changing uh locales that that humans can still travel to so yeah uh, for for joining uh, us and
1: yeah thank you so much for having me and and i i couldn't agree more it's uh you know it's it's unlike any other place in the world
0: all right thanks man